you for another wonderful day, beautiful day that you have allowed us the honor and the privilege of coming into your house. Father, help us today to worship you in spirit and in truth. May you be glorified. May your people be blessed. May our souls be set ablaze with a word from on high. May we incorporate it into our daily lives and bring you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 2, again, we're going to continue on our series of sermons through the book of Philippians. Today we'll be preaching part two of the sermon entitled Building Unity in the Church. Philippians 2 verses 1 through 4 is about that. It's about building unity. It's about unity in the church. Last week we talked uh, from verses 1 and two, and we talked about that having a relationship with Christ builds unity in churches. Having a, a, the love of Jesus Christ uh, builds unity in 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 the church, and the Spirit of Christ builds unity in the church. But we want to look at verses three and four today, as Paul rounds off this this teaching, if you will, on unity in the church. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Paul writes, fulfill my joy, be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, one mind. And as a pastor, a teacher, a church planner, and missionary, Paul did not ask the Philippian church for one dime. He did not ask them to send him on lavish vacations. He did not ask for a new mansion on the Judean hillside. He did not ask for a fleet of new chariots to ride in. In fact, Paul did not ask the church for stuff at all. Why? Because it was not monetary wealth or material stuff that would complete Paul's joy. But rather unity in the church, as Paul put it, would complete my joy. Notice Paul wrote, fulfill my joy. That was because Paul already had joy in his life associated with the Philippian church. He just wanted them to complete the process. He already had some joy. They were already doing a good job. He wanted them to go deeper. They were already good. He wanted them to get better. That's what he meant when he said, fulfill my joy. It's like, ladies, the man of your dream gives you a beautiful diamond ring as a symbol of his love and commitment to you. You say to him, this diamond ring is beautiful. I love wearing it. I love showing it off as a pledge of your love and your devotion to me. I have joy because of what this diamond ring on my finger represents. But now I need you to go a step further. I need you to go to the altar in the presence of God and say publicly, I take thee to be my wedded wife, 
for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish, to death do us part. When you do that, you will fulfill my joy. The, the ring is just a starting point. I, I like it. I don't have anything against it, but, but we need to go for When you do that at the altar, then you fulfill my joy. That's what Paul is saying. In other words, everything else is all right. It, it has its place, but when you say I do, that takes the matter to a whole different level. That's what Paul is saying. What you're doing is good, but it could be better. What we're doing, good hope, as a church is good. As we close 2016 and look forward to stepping into a brand new year, but it could be better. So let's go deeper. Paul says in verse 2, be like-minded. That is, have the same ministry-related goals and objectives. Have the same love. That is, let agape love flow through your veins individually and as a body of baptized believers in Jesus Christ. Paul says, be on one accord. That is, strive to work faithfully on every project together. Paul would say, don't let your mindset be, oh, that's their project. We'll push back. We'll stand back. We'll, we'll let them work that. That's their project. No, Paul would, says, would say, let your mindset be, this is our project. Let all of us work on it diligently together and let us make it happen. And then rounded off verse 2, Paul wrote, be of one mind. Maintain a Christ-honoring mindset. Ask yourselves the questions. Question, uh, is my thought process in line with that of Jesus? Paul continues in verse 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, a vain glory. Verse 3 is an indication that Paul understood human nature very well. He understood that it was human nature to be selfish, to be self-centered, to be self-seeking, and to be self-interested. Picture this scene. Two toddlers are playing on the playground. One toddler goes over to a, the other toddler and picks up that toddler's toy. His mother steps up to him and says, No, sweetheart, you can't have that toy. It doesn't belong to you. To which the toddler begins to cry, fall out on the ground, kick, and recite those famous words, mine, 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 it's mine. Selfish ambition, pride, arrogance, bent on controlling the movement the method, and even the message of the church based upon personal preferences, prejudices, or profit damages church unity. Therefore, it is vitally important for those of us who love Jesus and his church 
to check ourselves to make sure that what we are doing is not about trying to be Prince Charming or Cinderella. It's not about us, but it's about Jesus Christ. You see, all of us see ministry, as Dr. Harris pointed out when he taught a class some months ago. We see ministry and the world even through our own set of lenses through our background and through our experiences. So we must rely on the Spirit of God and the Word of God to guide us instead of personal feelings, emotions, attitudes, and experiences. So when we gather around the Word guided by the Spirit, unity will be the order of the day when selfishness Mind, mind, mind moves out. Unity moves in. Paul continues in verse 3. I love this. Uh, this consumed a lot of time this week as I, as I, as I meditated on this and meditated on this and, and checked to see what other theologians had to say on this, on this text. But in loneliness of mind. That means come humbly. That means get rid of the superiority complex. That means remove the self-righteous halo. That means embracing the reality that all of us in the church who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior are sinners saved by God's amazing grace. That means that everyone, regardless of titles or positions or duties or responsibilities or any other factor, are equal at the foot of the cross. Paul practiced what he preached, didn't he? Go back to the very beginning of the letter and notice how Paul introduced himself and Timothy. Verse 1 states, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Jesus Christ. He could have introduced himself as Paul, the great apostle. Paul, the powerful preacher. Paul, the prolific writer. Paul, born of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul, circumcised on the eighth day. Paul, a Pharisee among Pharisees. Paul, destined to become the leader of the Sanhedrin council. Paul, according to the law, blameless. Paul, who studied under the great rabbi Gamaliel, graduating summa cum laude from the University of Tarsus, etc., etc., etc. But he didn't. For with loneliness of mind, he wrote with humility. He wrote with modesty the words, Paul and Timothy, bondservant. Slaves, bought with a price. We belong to Jesus. Not my will, but thine be done. As great a man as God had made Paul to be, humbleness was a trademark. And for anybody listening to me today who may have a tendency to confuse humbleness with frailty 
or, or weakness like the Romans did who did not even have a word for humility in their vocabulary. Humility was an alien concept to them. They viewed it as weakness and frailty. And later when the church introduced the word, they used it in a derogatory way to point out Christians. Look at those weaklings. Look at those who can't have the life. Look at those who need a God, a so-called God, to help them make it through. Anyone can here today or listening to me have a tendency to confuse humbleness with frailty or weakness. Consider these biblical truths. Now, the man Moses was very humble. More than all men who were on the face of the earth, Numbers 12 and 3. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land, Second Chronicles 7.14. Likewise, you younger people, Submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be closed with, what's the word, class? Humility for God. Resist the proud, but give grace to the humble. Therefore, what's the word, class? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. Good news here that he may exalt you in due time. 1 Peter 5, 6, and 7. But he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. James 4 and 6. And being found, get this, in appearance as a man. He, meaning Jesus, humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross, Philippians 2 and 8. Paul continues in verse 3 by connecting lowliness of mind with the words, let each esteem others better than himself. Why would Paul need to push the humility point the way he did? The answer is found in the setting of the church at Caesarea Philippi. The church of Paul's day was part of the Greek Roman world system where relentless arrogance and pride, vainglory, and self-centeredness ruled. Theirs was a culture inflamed with intense competition. The standard philosophy of life for the Philippian church community and culture in which they were a part, the standard philosophy of life was this. Win at all costs, beat out the competition, Take what you can while you can. Attack and even destroy anybody or anything that happens to threaten your happiness, your success, or your power. This philosophy 
led people down the destructive paths of bitterness, hatred, insecurity, mistrust, and disunity. So Paul, having been a product of this environment prior to his becoming a believer in Jesus Christ, was fully aware of the reality that when people trusted Jesus as Lord and Savior and then transitioned into the church, the cultural influences which had dominated their lives for most of their lives did not magically or automatically go away. You see, all of that stuff that they had grown up with and grown up around, all of that stuff had become saturated into the fabric of their being. All of that stuff was dyed in the wool of their character. And it did not magically or automatically go away. It's like getting married. The family custom. The values, the traditions of each person don't ride off into the sunset. No, they come into the marriage union with us. The reason pre-marriage counseling is important is so that a wise Christian Biblical counselor can help couples see the family influences that will be fruitful to their marriage, fruitful to the new family, and and need to be remain a part of the new family structure, and also point out the things that will be harmful, be devastating to the marriage, and need to be let go. Well, that's what Paul does in verse 3. He counsels church members to let go of the me first mindset. I, I know you've been bred that way. I know through the literature and through theater and through the athletic games, all you know is competition, win, win, win. At all costs, step on, step over people, but you need to let it go and replace it with this, Paul wrote. Let each esteem others better than himself, which unlike the me generation produces division. Let each esteem others better than himself produces unity. Now here's what verse 3 looks like when we flesh it out. When we live it out within the context of the 21st century church. Here's what it looks like when we live it out amongst our good hope church family. We shine the spotlight on others more than on ourselves. That's what he's saying. We advertise the good qualities and the good nature and the good character of others more than we advertise our own good qualities, our own good nature, and our own good character. It means we publicize the gifts, the talents, the abilities 
and the strengths of others more than we publicize our gifts and talents, our strengths and, and our abilities. It means saying, look at them. Look at what they're doing. Look at what they're accomplishing. Look at how well God is blessing them instead of saying, look at me. Look at how well I'm doing. It means we step back. We step aside. We step over and sometimes we step out of the way so that others may have an opportunity to excel. I saw this fleshed out a couple of weeks. I was at uh, the Florida Baptist Convention in Clearwater. And I saw a reporter come up to a, a seasoned pastor. And, and he asked the pastor for an interview. This reporter had his, his, his camera, and, and he, he was ready to do this interview. But the seasoned pastor said to him, I thank you for the opportunity, but how about allowing this young pastor over here do it? He's just starting out. He's just, he, he's just beginning his ministry. Why don't you let him do it? The, the older pastor turned down one more time to have his name in the paper. One more time to have his face before the crowd on the camera. One more time to be recognized. Let him do it. And as they walked away and the reporter went to the young pastor and asked him to do the interview. And I watched with my own eyes. The young pastor's eyes began to bulge and he was so excited. He dropped his bags and he said, where do you want to do it? <laughs> he moved to position with a great big smile on his face and the older seasoned pastor walked the way that each of you, that each of you, let each esteem others better than himself. In conclusion, verse 4 states, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but for the interests of others. Paul is persistent in it. I mean, he's driving this thing home. He, he just won't let it alone. He says, let each of you look out not only for your own interests, but for the interests of others. Paul writes, take care of your interests, your needs, and your concerns, but don't stop with that. Don't stop with yours. Look out for the interests and needs of, of others. You may have enough to eat, but what about others? You may have clothing to wear, but what about others? You may have good transportation, but what about others? Your children may have an opportunity to go to fine schools, but what about others? You may have great shelter, but what about others? Paul reminds us in verse 4 not to be complacent with our blessings, but to be a blessing to others. 
I read an illustration recently that depicts very well what looking out for the interests of others look like. This illustration comes from a list of nurses' duties way back in 1887. And as I, as I, I read this list and, and reflected on it, I, I thought about the nurses in our congregation. I, I thought about Sister Argo, who is here this morning, and I thought about Sister Sykes, and I thought about uh, Sister Jane, I thought about Sister McCoy, and all, all of our nursing people, I thought, I thought about them. Here's the list. Daily sweep and mop the floors of your ward. Dust the patient's furniture and window seals. Maintain an even temperature in your ward by bringing coal for the day's business. Light is important to observe the patient's condition. Therefore, each day fill kerosene lamps. Today is you Sunday. When I preach this at 11, I'm going to probably have to explain that a little bit. <laughs> Each day, fill kerosene lamps and trim wicks. Wash the windows once a week. The nurse's notes are important in aiding the physician's work, so make your pens carefully. <laughs> Each nurse on day duty will report every day at 7 a.m. and leave every night at 8 p.m., except on Sunday, on which you may have two hours off duty. Graduate nurses in good standing with the director of nurses will be given an evening off for courting purposes and two evenings a week if you attend church regularly. The nurse who performs her labors and serves her patients and doctors faithfully for a period of five years shall be given an increase by the hospital administration of five cents a day. How's that? How is that? How is that for looking out not only for your own interest, but for the interest of others? Well, that's the kind of personal sacrifice on behalf of others. That kind of sacrifice on behalf of others is about as unnatural and unnormal as it gets. Yet that's the very thing Paul says will build unity among church members. Unity is built when our concerns extend beyond I, me, and mine. 
in a church where members are generally concerned that not only will I make it, but it is my goal and desire to do all within my God-given power to help others make it. Unity will be prevalent. That's the essence of Calvary. That's the message of the cross. That's the gospel in a nutshell. Jesus looked out for the interests of us all by suffering and bleeding and dying on Calvary's cross to save us from sin. So it is our charge. It is our mandate. It is our duty to lift each other up, cry with each other, console each other, stand for each other, stand with each other, care for each other, carry each other, pray for each other, and protect each other. That's what building unity in the church is all about. The question on the floor, the challenge before us today is, are we about it? God, we thank you so much for the...